So this is our third and final week on this series that I, yeah, still haven't named yet and probably never will, but it's about uh, Moses, Abraham, and Jonah and their response and responsibility as leaders in faith and in community and what they do when faced with divine wrath or a divine problem or something that God puts in their way that causes them to pause and consider what needs to be my response to this. Who do I need to be in response to what God has given to me? And so in the first sermon in the series, we talked about Moses. Now, if you want to pause here and jump back two episodes to In the Divine Warpath and listen to a much deeper explanation of what I talk about in regard to Moses, feel free to do so now. But just to quickly recap, Moses is responding to God's anger after the Israelites create the golden calf in Exodus 32. And ultimately what ends up happening is God says, I'm going to destroy these people and I'm going to make a new nation out of you. And Moses says, hey, you can't do that. That's not right. That's not merciful. That's not who you are. And Moses ultimately changes God's mind, which is something that I think people sometimes struggle with, um, but I think is a really cool example of what it means for us to be human in relationship to God, that God doesn't just control everything we do, but we have a say in what happens to us and how we relate to God. And so Moses' story shows us that God asks leadership to step up and say, this isn't right. We must do what is good and what is merciful, and we can't think about just what's in it for me. And so in the next sermon in the series, I talked about Abraham and Isaac. And now this story is a story that gives a lot of people trouble in the Bible. It's a story about Abraham being asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And if you want to pause here and jump back to last week, the failure of Abraham, uh, you'll get, a, again, a much more in-depth understanding of what I'm talking about when it comes to this story. But at the end of the day, I basically say that I think Abraham failed the test, quote unquote. I think by Abraham being willing to blindly obey God and murder his only son, I think he fails what God is asking him to do. Because a few chapters before this, Abraham shows mercy and righteousness when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah and their impending doom, and yet doesn't ask God to spare his son. He asks God to spare a city of thousands of strangers and doesn't do the same with his son. And so in that story, we see, again, God gives this huge leader. Abraham is considered the patriarch of Israel, and God gives him an opportunity to show righteousness, to say, this isn't right. I'm not going to murder my son. I'm not going to blindly obey something that I think is wrong. And Abraham doesn't, doesn't do that. I think he fails the test. And so this week is the last week of this series, and we're talking about Jonah. And Jonah is such an interesting figure because I think we grow up with this story as kids because it's like Jonah and the whale, and you've got songs about it, and it's a story that can be illustrated vividly for little kids. And so we often read about it, and I don't know, when I grew up, I never read about Jonah as a negative figure but I went to seminary and I took Hebrew and part of our second semester of Hebrew class was translating the entire book of Jonah. It's only four chapters. It's actually really short and we are going to read all of it today. But we translated the book of Jonah and I suddenly realized like Jonah kind of sucks. I mean, like really, like this person who this character in the Bible that I thought was a really good person actually really sucks. 
I mean, there's no other way to put it. Um, and I think one of the things you have to realize throughout these three weeks is that these people that we're talking about, these characters, Moses, Abraham, and Jonah, they're human. I think we often put biblical characters on a pedestal and say like they are the ultimate end all be all perfection of humanity. But I've only known one human being who is considered humanity perfected. And it certainly wasn't Moses, Abraham or Jonah. And so in this story of Jonah, he acts very human. And so we're going to dive into the entire book and talk about how Jonah responds to God, how Jonah gets it wrong, honestly, and what are we supposed to do about it? So we have to understand the book of Jonah in four parts. There are four chapters, which makes it really easy. But in each chapter, Jonah has himself as the main character, obviously, and then is against someone or has a response to someone or has an interaction with another character that I think is important. So the first chapter is about Jonah and the sailors. And you'll see more about why this is once we read it. So if you want to get out your Bible, feel free to flip to Jonah. It's in the Old Testament chapter one and join with me in reading. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and lay down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing, sound of sleep? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps your God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish." The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So Jonah responds, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you so that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
Now, a lot happens in this first chapter, but I want to focus in specifically on the different reactions of Jonah and the sailors to the sea. See, when we first hear that the sea is tossing the ship about, that the ship is threatening to break apart, the sailors immediately pray to their gods. I imagine they get down on their knees and pray fervently to whoever they believe in, asking please to spare them. They're working hard to save one another from this storm. They're throwing things off the ship to lighten the load. They're constantly at work. And where's Jonah? He's down in the bottom taking a nap. For someone who worships the God who created the land and sea, he's not doing a whole lot to offer supplication to God on behalf of the other people on this boat. In fact, it takes the captain of the ship, someone who doesn't believe in the God of Israel, to go down to wake Jonah up, to beg him to pray and save the ship from certain destruction. But we actually don't have proof that Jonah ever prays to God. And so then the sailors say, well, let's figure out why this has happened. Who has brought this storm upon us? Why is this happening? And it's Jonah. And Jonah makes this big speech about how he worships the God of land and sea, but we've never seen Jonah pray throughout this whole time. And Jonah doesn't make any move to try to help the people who are suffering because of his choices. See, that's the deal. Jonah chose to flee and has brought this storm upon these men and makes no effort to save them. He makes no move to pray, to help them throw things overboard. He goes and takes a nap. And even when the captain begs him to pray on their behalf, we don't know that Jonah actually does. In looking at the difference between the sailors and Jonah, Jonah, who's unwilling to even lift a finger to save the people who take him on this boat, the difference between Jonah and these sailors is that when these sailors discover that it's because of Jonah that their lives are being threatened by the storm, their first reaction is not to get rid of him. Their first reaction is to fight even harder because they know the importance and the value of a human life. Jonah is some guy that just showed up out of nowhere, bought a ticket in this port of Joppa to go to Tarshish. They have no idea who he is, and yet they're willing to risk their own lives to save him. They're willing to do everything they can to save him and the ship, but it doesn't work. The storm gets worse and gets worse and gets worse and gets worse, and finally they say, what, what are we going to do? Jonah, help us, please do something. What can we do so that we don't all die? Because even then, even when Jonah hasn't done a thing to help them, the sailors still want him to live. They still do not want him to die. Now, something important happens here. We all know the story that Jonah ends up in the sea in the belly of a fish. And it is a fish, not a whale. I've read the Hebrew. I know this. But Jonah ends up in the sea, and I guess as a little kid, I always thought that was God. And I always thought it was super weird that God did that. But if we go back and read, it's not God that says, throw Jonah overboard. God hasn't spoken since the first couple verses. It's Jonah that says, throw me overboard. Now, we may assume that God spoke to Jonah, but wouldn't that be important enough to write down? Wouldn't it make sense that someone would want to write down that it was God who put forth this punishment? But no, it's Jonah. See, Jonah chooses his own fate. It's Jonah who asks to die. 
Not the sailors or even God. And see, Jonah's not expecting to be saved by a fish. Who would expect that? He willingly is wanting to be thrown overboard to die because he would rather die than go to Nineveh. He would rather die than help these sailors. And so even when these sailors agree to this, they plead out to Jonah's God. They plead out to the God of Israel, please do not condemn us. They don't want to do this. They plead for forgiveness after tossing Jonah overboard. And then they all come to believe in God. And so here's this juxtaposition of this prophet Jonah, who supposedly is a man of God who worships the God of land and sea, but has yet to pray in this entire chapter, has yet to sacrifice anything for the good of the fellow persons on the ship, and has yet to actually talk to God beyond the first two verses. And yet the sailors, people who up until this moment didn't believe in God, have somehow come to this transformation and come to believe in the God of Israel. So in spite of Jonah and all his stubbornness and his wanting to die, God uses him to bring these sailors about to believe in God. This is important. So remember it as we go forward. So we'll move on to chapter two, which is Jonah and the fish. And now this part of the book of Jonah comes across as a very typical Hebrew poem, but there are some things that are out of place, and I want to see if you can notice them as I read. So we're reading from Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shale I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, fun facts, that spewed really means vomit. So Jonah got puked up on the land, which I always found pretty humorous. So as we read this chapter, it seems like that Jonah has finally turned things around. He's praying to God. He's offering supplication. He's crying out to God. And we think this is great. Jonah's turned a corner and he's going to repent and he's going to go to Nineveh. Yet things are not as they seem. See, in the first two verses, Jonah says things that aren't true. Let's go back and read it again. I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Now we skip down to verse three. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. We just read in the previous chapter that Jonah didn't pray to God. The rest of the boat called out to God. The rest of the boat cried out for God's mercy, yet Jonah didn't. So what is Jonah talking about when he says, I called out to you, O Lord, from my distress, because Jonah hasn't prayed once. In fact, this is the first time Jonah has prayed in the entire book. And in the third verse, he says, 
you cast me into the deep. But we know that's not true. We know in the previous chapter, it's Jonah who decides his own fate. It's Jonah who says, throw me into the sea. It's Jonah who would rather die than go to Nineveh. So why does he say that God cast him into the sea? God never commanded the sailors or Jonah to do this. And yet Jonah places the blame on God. Jonah throughout this prayer seems to present this view that he wanted to be saved. That as his life was ebbing away, he remembered the Lord and God saved him. And yet I can't help but wonder why a guy who was so willing to run away from God just so he didn't have to go to Nineveh, just so he didn't have to proclaim the word of the Lord, would run away to a ship headed in the opposite direction and then be willing to sacrifice other people's lives, willing to let the sailors die on his behalf. And then finally, when he's found out and they call him out for being the one that brought this calamity upon them, instead of saying, turn the ship around and go to Nineveh, and this will stop, which is what I imagine would probably happen since that's what God asked him to do in the first place. He says, throw me into the sea without assurance that he's going to be rescued by a fish. Throw me into the sea because I would rather die than go to Nineveh. And yet in this chapter, Jonah makes it seem like he's the victim. So remember in the first chapter, God brings about transformation in spite of Jonah's resistance. And in the second chapter, Jonah is unwilling to take responsibility for his actions and continues to place the blame on God. So we move to chapter three and we're finally moving into the city of Nineveh. Jonah is finally doing what he was called to do in the first place. So let's read chapter three verses one through 10 together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city of three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk and he cried out 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on a sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in the ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered in sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. So in this chapter, again, it appears that Jonah is finally doing what God asks. It appears that Jonah has finally experienced transformation of his own. It appears that he's obeying God and going to warn the city of Nineveh about their coming destruction. But once again, 
things are not as they seem. For firstly, the text tells us that Nineveh is a very large city, an exceedingly large city. It takes three days to walk across the entirety of Nineveh. And yet, Jonah only walks a day's journey and quits. It literally says that. It says Jonah went a day's walk. Now, if you go a day's walk in a city that takes three days to walk across, I'm pretty sure that means only one third of the city is going to hear your words. And see, Jonah doesn't even offer repentance. Jonah walks in the city one day, doesn't really try, and says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and then nothing else. Normally, when prophets call out injustice in the world, they offer steps by which to redeem oneself of the injustice. Usually, when prophets call out a city, they say, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown unless you do blah, blah, blah. But Jonah doesn't even do that. He doesn't try at all. However, again, in spite of Jonah being the absolute worst prophet ever, God prevails. Just as with the sailors in chapter one, God brings about transformation in spite of Jonah. See, the message reaches the whole city. It reaches to even the king and all the people repent of their sins and seek restoration. They figure out a way to repent without Jonah. Jonah doesn't have to give them instructions. They do it themselves. And God sees this. Jonah's stubbornness is no match for God. Transformation persists with or without his wholehearted participation. And so God still uses this unwilling, stubborn prophet to save a whole city. And once again, because of human intervention... God changes God's mind about destruction. Because Nineveh repented, because Nineveh sought to actively restore the relationship that had been broken between them and God, God changed God's mind and offered salvation to this city. Now, this could be where Jonah ends. This could be where the book is over. Jonah went to Nineveh. He proclaimed the word of God, however unwillingly, and God saved the city. This is a great story to end it right here, but there's a fourth chapter. And the fourth chapter isn't about Nineveh, and it's not about the sailors, and it's not even about the fish. The fourth chapter is about Jonah and God. And so hear these words from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush, in Hebrew it's kikayon, and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was very happy about this bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so it withered. When the sun rose, 
God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint, and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are more concerned about the bush for which you did not labor, for which you did not grow. It came into being in one night and perished in one night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, a great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Yeah, that's the end of the book. Sounds kind of weird, but there's a point to it. See, the book of Jonah ends with Jonah realizing that God has spared the city of Nineveh, which he says is what he feared from the beginning. And when faced with the reality that God showed mercy to the city, Jonah becomes so angry that he asks God to kill him. See, Jonah does the same thing in chapter 1. If he believes that God is going to save Nineveh and he doesn't want Nineveh to be saved, he doesn't even want to go to tell them to repent. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. He would rather die than help God save this city. It appears as though Jonah wanted all of Nineveh to perish. And so now that they have repented, Jonah would rather die than live in a world where people can change for the better. And yet that's what God's been doing all along throughout this book. God does it with the sailors in spite of Jonah. They come to worship God and God does it with the city of Nineveh that in spite of Jonah's stubbornness and unwillingness to preach the word of God to them, they still are transformed by God's grace and God's love. And so in response to Jonah's dramatics that I would rather die than see God give mercy to people that I deemed unworthy, God plants a bush. God plants this kikayon to provide shade and comfort for Jonah. God still shows mercy to Jonah, even in his terribleness. And then God kills the kikayon. God kills this bush. And Jonah again dramatically asks to die. And so then God shows Jonah the inconsistencies in his belief. If Jonah cared so deeply for the kikayon that when it died, he too asked to die, shouldn't God be just as concerned for Nineveh as Jonah was for a single plant? Throughout the past three weeks, we've seen how God gives humanity opportunities to intervene through mercy on behalf of a people doomed for destruction. We've seen how Moses responded by standing in the way of God's wrath and saying, spare these people for they are your people. We see how Abraham got it right with Sodom and Gomorrah by standing and saying, God, will you not spare this city on account of 10 righteous people and then failed by asking for the same for his only son. And we see how Jonah, who knew that God was merciful, who comes after Abraham and Moses, who knows that God is more willing to turn to redemption in the face of repentance than destruction, so wants Nineveh to suffer that he would rather die than offer the grace of God to these people. These stories show us not the importance of God's love and mercy, which we know to be intrinsic to God's character, but rather it shows us the utmost importance of the human response to God suggesting destruction of the other. 
If anything, these three stories teach us that it's not about the goodness of God, but rather has everything to do with the goodness of humanity. I think these stories ask us important questions. Are we going to stand up for justice, even if it means standing in the way of what others might perceive as the will of God? Are we going to place higher value on human lives than blind obedience to a leader or a cause? Are we going to be able to recognize that God's mercy should be offered freely to everyone and then emulated in our own lives? Or would we rather die than see God's transforming love at work and those that we have already written off as irredeemable? Thanks for listening to The Virtual Pulpit. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us with the show. We are self-funded, so if you'd like to donate to The Virtual Pulpit, you can do so on our Patreon page at The Virtual Pulpit. If you have any theological questions, comments, or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, be sure to check out our website, thevirtualpulpit.com.